we just asked them, you know, how many calories do you think you need to eat as an athlete? How many grams of protein do you think you need to be eating? We would get answers from 15 grams of protein to 8,000 grams of protein. Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bums. Welcome back or welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I'm Mark Bubbs and this is season number seven. We've got an awesome episode for you today. Dr. Andrew Jagum, PhD, is on the show. Andrew is currently the Director of Sports Medicine Research for the Mayo Clinic Health System in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and an Associate Professor of Family Medicine. He completed his master's degree in human performance at the University of Wisconsin, and then went on to complete his PhD in kinesiology at Texas A&M University under Dr. Richard Kreider in the Exercise and Sport Nutrition Lab. A really fascinating conversation with Andrew in this episode. We're talking about testing and assessing resting metabolic rates in athletes, his work around omega-3 and concussion, as well as applications of creatine in kids and teens. Really interesting research and and a lot of great insights and questions for future research here in this episode. But before we get started, a quick shout out to athleteperformancenutrition.com who are sponsoring today's show. If you're working with elite team sport athletes and want to make a bigger impact, you'll want to grab a seat in the updated Performance Nutrition Level 1 certification course this February. Level up your knowledge in game day, halftime, and recovery nutrition, hydration protocols, fueling in compressed windows, immune nutrition strategies, team sport and endurance nutrition, and much, much more. You'll learn from leading experts you've heard on the Performance Nutrition Podcast, get monthly access to mentoring sessions, and connect with like-minded practitioners and experts. Head over to athleteperformancenutrition.com forward slash courses. The early bird sales are all sold out, but you can still save 25% off using the code PN2023. That's athleteperformancenutrition.com forward slash courses. Use the promo code PN2023 and join us this February for the 12-week intensive course. All right, let's do this. My conversation with Dr. Andrew Jacob. Andrew, really appreciate you uh, carving out some time for us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Listen, I think it'd be great to kick things off here with just telling uh, you know listeners and viewers a little bit more about yourself and, and your background in research. All right. So currently I work for a Mayo Clinic in their sports medicine department. Uh, I have kind of a primary research type role here. I do see some patients in the clinic as well. Uh, they can come see me for any kind of general consult related to sport performance, sport nutrition, uh, kind of getting help with maybe a strength conditioning workout or tends to be more sport nutrition related. Uh, and that kind of ties directly into a lot of my research interests. Uh, I kind of broadly describe it as anything related to nutrition and exercise strategies and how they can influence performance and health, which Amazing. obviously covers a, a really wide Good spectrum. Yeah, there you go. But to be honest, I'm kind of interested in all of it. So I, I don't really kind of narrow it down to a specific you know, line of research within that umbrella. I, I truly am interested in all kind of aspects of, of human performance and health. And as you know, that'll carry you into nutrition, sleep, strength conditioning, injury prevention, you know, rehab, all of it I'm, I'm kind of interested in. So, and that's, you know, somewhat intentional. I just, again, really like all those different aspects. And so we'll, we'll do projects kind of related to some of those different sub-disciplines 
uh, and then really across a wide range of populations. So some of it's down at the youth level, um, high school, collegiate, and then up into the amateur ranks as well. Yeah, that's really fascinating when you get a chance to work with kind of younger populations or older populations or a real breadth of different areas within human performance or sport performance, because you, you do start making some connections that you might otherwise miss, right? If you're sort of working in sort of a narrower slice of, of uh, you know, elite sport. And, yeah. you know, that maybe kicks things off with just a discussion around when we're thinking about athletes and supporting athletes from a nutritional standpoint, we're always trying to figure out, okay, what's, what's the athlete doing? You know, how much energy are they expending? What are the physical demands of the sport? And Hey, indirect calorimetry is a great valid and reliable measure, but it's, it's a little expensive and not everybody has access to it. So we're, we're using equations and we're putting a lot of faith in some of the equations to be able to tell us what we think it's telling us in regards to the athlete that's in front of us, male, female, various sports, you know, you've done some work in this area. Can you walk us through, you know, what you guys did and, and some of the, you know, the key findings? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I used to be a faculty member at our local university here in the area in our exercise and sports science department. And, and they're very closely intertwined with ac academics and athletics. It was a division three university in, in the States. And so we kind of had the luxury of working firsthand with a lot of those athletes. We shared the same buildings, a lot of the staff kind of taught and coached. And so you are, you are always kind of intertwined uh, with the two, which I loved. And so we did a lot of kind of seasonal assessments of different athletes there. And part of that included just kind of a routine body comp test and a metabolic test. And that kind of helped them provide, provide the athlete with some feedback of here's kind of your current, you know, body composition profile. Here's some of your basic kind of nutritional needs, uh, you know, based on your activity level. And, and so the, the metabolic cart that we used over on campus, you know, which is what we relied on, as you said, through indirect calorimity to get kind of their resting metabolic rate. But what we noticed on the print off is it was consistently higher than what the predicted equation, equation okay. often yielded. So it would mm -hmm. give it to you right on there. You know, it said Harris Benedict predicted RMR to be 1500. And yet, you know, consistently our athletes were about three to 400 above that. And so we kind of stumbled upon this research question of, I wonder how you know common that is for these different kind of gen pop type RMR equations that are out there to predict uh, kind of resting metabolic rate. So with a lot of the data that we had already collected, we just kind of retrospectively compared that to what some of the different predicted RMR equations would yield. Mm -hmm. And as you kind of alluded to, again, very different values that we were getting through these calculations compared to what the actual, you know, measured RMR values were. And, and that work, we've even kind of replicated that initial study with kind of triple the, the sample size in our follow-up paper. And there's been several others that have kind of looked at a similar, you know, concept. And, and again, pretty consistently, we see that a lot of those general population derived equations probably aren't the best to use uh, with athletes. Um, and so we, we think, you know, for a variety of different reasons, one being the the just body stature and body composition of athletes are so different than yeah. what we see in general population. So that part, you know, we, we kind of thought made sense. And then also we think athletes, just because they're so active, they're probably in this constant state of kind of elevated, you know, metabolic activity where 
you know, that might also explain why their RMR values were so higher than, or so much higher than the predicted values. Cause they're always, again, just kind of in this at of elevated state of metabolic activity. Maybe they just constantly are kind of running high from a yeah. metabolic perspective. It, and again, you just kind of have to keep up with that from a fueling perspective of, you know, just trying to match that energy expenditure as best you can. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. A few seasons ago, we had one of the leads for uh, Aston Villa's youth Academy, some of the work they'd done in predictive equations for youth athletes, because obviously there'd been nothing really standardized in that cohort. And, you know, the, the, the levels that they found were just enormous compared to what the general population of that age might be doing. And so that just the requirement then to fuel becomes so high. And I, you can almost appreciate where the general public gets a little confused because with two thirds of the population overweight or obese, they're wondering why you're pumping juice and, various uh, supplements or bars or PB and J's or whatever it might be into the athlete thinking, wait a minute, I'm being told not to eat all these things, but obviously context drives everything. And, you know, yeah, absolutely. You know, in the papers, obviously you guys have found some sex differences as well with, with some of the predictive equations of what might be more impactful for female versus male athletes. Yeah. So kind of looking at the absolute RMR values, again, we would pretty consistently see this difference where the male athletes, you know, were typically 2000 to 2,500 in terms of what their RMR was yielding. Whereas the female athletes, you know, it was 1400 to 1700 mm -hmm. uh, for the most part with the athletes that, that we were assessing. But then, you know, we thought a lot of that's probably being driven by just body size differences. And gotcha, so when gotcha. we kind of normalized absolute RMR based on both body mass and fat free mass, we no longer saw any kind of statistical difference, you know, across gender there. So we, we kind of attributed that to most of those differences in resting metabolic rate are probably just based on body size. Um, I know there have been some studies that have seen, you know, slight fluctuations throughout the menstrual cycle, which is, we didn't account for that in, in the studies that we were doing. So that might, you know, partially explain some of those findings, but just kind of as the whole, you know, bird's eye view, you know, male athletes tend to be a little bit larger than female counterparts for most yeah. sports. So they're just going to require, you know, a higher energy intake to kind of account for that increased metabolic demand. Yeah, and you, I mean, you had a chance as well to do some work around, you know, it's interesting when you look at, at seasons, especially when we look at team sports, because obviously the variables, there's so many variables and inputs into the system versus a endurance sport or cycling or something where we can really calculate the energy required and the distance and things are quite fixed. And so, you know, looking at that, having an understanding of, of energy requirements and then looking at, you know, a season and I think it was female basketball players that you guys did, uh, you know, looking at energy expenditure and dietary intake, can you, you know, walk us through that study setup and, you know, again, some of the things that stood out for you in that work? Yeah, so I worked at Lindenwood University, which is a, a Division II school at the time it was in the St. Louis area uh, in the States. And a good friend, a colleague of mine, Chad Kirksick, uh, had been there prior to my arrival and had, a, again, a good relationship with, with the athletics program there. And they, they often, you know, sought academics help for guidance on, again, a lot of sport nutrition um, type programming, you know, efforts. And as you just alluded to with team sport athletes at the collegiate level, there wasn't a lot of data out there on yeah. you know, specifically what those energy requirements were. And then, you know, kind of secondarily to that, do they change throughout the season? And so we actually it was two studies. We did kind of back to back there where we outfitted both the basketball team and the lacrosse team 
with kind of wearable activity monitors that had been validated to, you know, kind of provide pretty reliable inaccurate estimates of energy expenditure. And so we had the athletes wear that throughout the entire season. Uh, and again, we kind of wow. chunked it into different phases there where we looked at, you know, off season, you know, kind of early in season into the postseason, and then kind of immediately following to see, you know, how do those energy expenditure profiles fluctuate. And kind of when we averaged the values, there weren't drastic values across each of those um, or drastic changes, I should say, across the different phases within the season. Okay. But some interesting things that we observed in, in follow-up was that the day-to-day -day variations were actually quite substantial, uh, specifically based on the type of activity that we were doing. And okay. so we had a nice follow-up paper that kind of coded those different day types by a complete off day or a rest day a practice day or some kind of competition day. And it was really interesting to see how their energy expenditure would change, you know, based on that different day type. And I think that's something that a lot of athletes and even people maybe sometimes fail to realize is that when you're given kind of a calorie goal or a calorie target, that's not a static number, you know, that's going to yeah, change a, you know, a fair amount, even within the day, it's going to change a little bit, but certainly, you know, day to day, week to week, and so that was kind of what we were trying to get at with, with those studies is how, how does that value change? And, and then from a practitioner standpoint or from an athlete standpoint, how can they try to apply, you know, some of those findings? And, and I don't know if you've worked with younger female athletes, but yeah. they always get kind of a, you know, a shock when they see I burned 3,500 calories yeah. a, a day, you know, yeah. that, that's how many energy or how much energy I'm turning through. We're like, yeah, you, you know, you got to try to match that through, through energy in on the other side of it to kind of sustain that level of training and, and recovery. And so it's always, you know, kind of fun to use some of that research is almost an educational tool right in the moment where we can then educate these athletes on, you know, the, these are kind of your energy needs as you go throughout your season. And you really need to try to match that as best you can to, you know, just support not only performance, but, you know, health and, and muscle and bone and things like that throughout the season. So, it was kind of eye-opening for them. And then it was, again, you know, helpful to now have some objective values to point athletes to, you know, for a typical division two, you know, female basketball player, lacrosse athlete, you know, there, now there's some guidelines out there in terms of what those energy requirements likely are throughout a season. Yeah. It's amazing. Circling back to your point, just around energy expenditure, depending on the day. I mean, sort of coming back to this fuel for the work required paradigm of on certain days, particularly with team sports, you're really the, the level of expenditure could be enormous. And then particularly for student athletes, if you have an off day or another day, you might just be sitting around all day studying or doing whatever. And so that understanding of how we might, you know, still maintain a protein intake or a meal frequency or whatnot, but the actual total energy then, and oftentimes, you know, carbohydrates are the bigger one that's going to swing because there's just a bigger range for them to swing. I mean, I had, uh, Sam Impion uh, last year talking about the Tour de France riders. And I think they said that they had the guys up to 15 to 18 grams per kilo of carbohydrate in the mountain stages, which is just, you know, gummy bears, just the whole deal of just things that were light and energy dense and whatnot. Um, so that's, and like you said, just being able to see the data, I think is tremendous because definitely with athletes, especially younger athletes, it just speaks a thousand words, doesn't it? It just takes the pressure off the coach to have to sort of, explaining or almost lecturing in terms of trying to get them to do something. Whereas when they can see this number, just because like you say, they just, the lights turn on and they realize how much they need to, to take in. Now, 
in regards to some of the macros or, or energy changes, I mean, I think it was something like 3.7 grams per kilo is maybe the average across the female basketball players. Does that sound familiar? Or? Yep. And as you mentioned, you know, carbohydrates is what we frequently encounter is the macronutrient that they often fail, you know, fall short on in terms of kind of meeting some of the established sports specific recommendations. And then protein I found too, can be a challenge uh, for younger athletes trying to meet kind of the, the recommended intakes there for athletes. And then, you know, as I'm sure you've encountered, the, the challenge then is taking some of the that objective data and then translating that into, you know, because again, we, we got this question a lot from the athletes is, well, well what should I eat then? Or, How do I do this? How much, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, they see calories or macros on paper, but it's sometimes hard to conceptualize what does that mean when I'm putting a plate of food together? Yeah. So that's where practitioners, you know, are, are kind of faced with that challenge of, okay, how do we take this information and now relay it back to the athletes to, you know, if you're burning an extra thousand calories, that's probably an extra meal or certainly, you know, two extra snacks in there throughout the day. Or, you know, again, just trying to put some of those practical strategies back in the athletes, you know, toolkit there so that they can, you know, try to learn from some of the, the data that we're generating from these studies and, and apply them into every day, because, you know, we don't expect, expect athletes to walk around with food scales and, yeah. you know, things like that to calculate out calories and macros. So it's, you got to try to apply that as best you can. Yeah. Heuristics and visuals definitely become uh, key players in the story. And then it does highlight that, Hey, if you're only eating two meals a day, it's going to be tough to hit oh. 3000 calories. And so it, it starts to reinforce some of the messages of, okay, we need to get that meal frequency up. And, you know, even the confusing topic, again, if we sort of think of general population athletes around the closer we are to exercise of, again, some of the fast or simple carbohydrates and, and how we might be pushing some of those things in those windows. And especially for younger athletes, the parents, again, can get confused. They might even be on a low carb diet because they're struggling with hypertension or, you know, chronically high blood sugar levels, weight gain, all that. And so it's difficult to to be able to parse that out for them and say, no, no, your athlete, your, your daughter, your son needs this type of fuel. And of course, great when you have connection to a, a research institute or a medical center where you can kind of show them the, you know, obviously as the athletes gets older, you can show them their blood profiles. Hey, this, everything looks great. Don't worry. Your, 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 your son, your athlete, your daughter is doing fine. Um, yeah. That, that kind of spun us off in a direct, different direction too. Uh, follow up to some of those monitoring studies is, mm -hmm. you know, again, after working with those athletes, you quickly realize they really don't have that kind of background nutrition knowledge, which you wouldn't really expect them to, but then certainly not a kind of sports specific uh, nutrition knowledge based. And so we we've done a couple of follow-up projects where we've really just evaluated their sport nutrition knowledge. There's some really nice kind of validated survey tools that are out there. And so we've started to administer that to some of these athletes and, as you'd kind of expect, they, they score quite poorly on that, not to, you know, belittle them, but they're again, they, busy they with other things and they're busy with their sport and busy with, uh, yeah, they're not nutrition majors, you know, they're not going to school for that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that was again, kind of eye opening as well, no wonder they're missing some of these recommendations from a kind of nutritional standpoint, they don't even know what they should be eating. Yeah. And then you, you add in that confusion of, you know, their parents might be on a weight loss diet or certainly mainstream nutrition TikTok advice. <laughs> yeah. They're doing intermittent fasting or trying keto, you know, cause they heard about it on Instagram and all these different, you know, incoming sources. They don't know who to trust or, or, you know, what's best for them. And so that's what I think athletes are going to be 
you know, faced with now moving forward is how, how do you filter all this information? How do you, you know, know which one's specific to you or who to listen to? Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of voices out there, a lot of sources of, of nutrition advice. So it's important for them to kind of seek, you know, experts that, that really kind of know and understand what those nutritional requirements need to be for them. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. A quick reminder, if you want to stay up to date on when each episode of the Performance Nutrition Podcast drops and receive evidence-based insights every month, then join the Athlete Performance Nutrition Community by signing up to our newsletter. Head over to athleteperformancenutrition.com and sign up in the big black box. All right, let's get back to the conversation. And what were some of the things, I mean, we can sort of guess what some of the things might have been, but on those surveys for athletes and the sort of lack of understanding around nutrition for some of those collegiate athletes are the things that you recall that jump out? Like, again, they just had no um, kind of basic understanding of what that even meant. What was a gram of protein, you know, or any of those just kind of real basic nutrition questions for people who kind of live in that world. But for athletes, they just had no idea what any of it meant. And it was almost hard to analyze from a statistical statistical standpoint, because again, that's such a variability of responses that we were getting. Uh, we kind of had to transform the data a bit just to do it. But it, again, it just spoke to, well, geez, no wonder these athletes often fail to meet sports specific nutritional recommendations because they, they just don't have any of that foundational knowledge. So yeah, I think the more, you know, we can develop some of these tangible, easy to use, kind of education interventions or, you know, online learning modules, things like that. I think athletes could really benefit from it, especially when they don't have access to, like you said, you know, medical centers or a sport dietitian for the team and those kinds of things. It's a nice lesson too, for even like the, uh, the sport dietitian or the performance nutritionist who has that deep knowledge of sometimes starting a little too deep. You know, when you're saying if, if, if the athlete thinks they need 8,000 grams of or 15 grams of protein like we already there's there's a surface level that we can start at that's pretty straightforward that we could before getting into a lot of the nitty-gritty which sometimes you know when you're eager as whether it's a young trainer or a nutritionist or whomever you sort of it's easy tendency to information overload isn't it and sort of yeah. and and, and oh, now yeah. you've left the athlete you know still confused because there's too, it's again too much information so i think that's a nice uh you know, a nice nugget there. And if we pivot here a little bit and talk a bit about, uh, you know, I work in, in various contact sports, ice hockey, American football, a lot of contact, a lot of head trauma, concussions are a real part of that. And obviously that has impacts on the brain and, and, and neurological uh, symptoms. And again, various nutrients, things like omega-3s have a potential for a big role around, you know, supporting neurological function. And again, you've done some work in this area. Can you you know, talk us through, uh, again, some of the studies that you've done and, and the setup and, and some of those key findings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, we kind of set up a two-part project. First of it being, are there any ways that we can kind of assess either concussion or some of the sub-concussive impact in terms of how it's affecting particularly the brain, you know, in like a point of care type setting, because I know that's always a, a popular question out there of, well, can we remove the subjectivity or ambu- ambiguity out of concussion diagnosis? You know, can we just measure something in the blood mm-hmm. or saliva and say, yep, you have a concussion, you can't go back out there or no, no, everything looks good. You're allowed to return to the game. 
And so I know a lot of people are working on trying to figure out what is this biomarker or, or can we get there as kind of a sports medicine field. And so the, the first projects that we did was, was just kind of that. Can we look at a biomarker that you can assess in the blood and can it give us an indication of the level of trauma that the brain may be experiencing throughout a season? So mm -hmm. we, we looked at American football athletes and we did kind of serial blood draws throughout a season. And we were kind of specifically looking at two biomarkers, tau, and then this uh, neurofilament light polypeptide. Ironically, it gets abbreviated as NFL, um, kind of fitting yeah. for the, the sport. Uh, and again, we particularly with the NFL biomarker, we, we saw pretty consistent upward trends throughout the season, even in athletes that weren't experiencing or had like a confirmed concussion diagnosis, meaning even if you're not getting your bell rung, you know, big time and you're out for several weeks, still that biomarker of brain damage is still likely going up throughout a season just from the repetitive, you know, head impacts that they experience within that sport, even at kind of a sub concussive level. And so that, that's just startling to see, you know, that data, you know, kind of looking at you on paper, knowing that they're experiencing mild brain trauma uh, throughout a season. And this yeah. was division three, you know, American football, so small, relatively smaller, small being a in, right. in quotations. smaller, uh, yep. Probably not as fast, probably don't hit as hard mm -hmm. as some of the higher levels of competition. So again, it would be interesting to know what's, what's happening at division one and certainly at the professional level there. And do we know if there's sort of a, you know, a washout period, if you will, Andrew, in terms of, you know, you go through the summer, you get three or four months of the off season, you know, when we start to see the neurofilament light levels, coming down or normalizing or what do we know there? Yeah, we, we certainly didn't follow it up that long. And I don't know if, if any other groups have looked at that as well. And it, it's difficult too, because some of these biomarkers are relatively new. So we, we don't even have well-established kind of windows sure. or, you know, normal ranges that they need to be in. We just kind of had in relation to their own baseline yeah. value. Um, and so certainly more data, you know, needs to be, you know, collected to try to come up with more established ranges there. Uh, and again, probably answer some of those washout, you know, questions. Is there kind of a recovery that occurs in the off season or, you know, what do some of those changes look like throughout a season? And then hopefully, you know, throughout their career that they don't kind of reach this real excessive point later on. And a quick, a quick sidebar question. Do you find it challenging to get the coaches buy-in for running regular blood tests through a season? Cause that's always sort of the, little stumbling block of trying to program it into the coaches and they're practicing or traveling. And it becomes a, imagine with being at the university sort of helpful, but I'm curious to hear your experiences with that. Yeah, It, it was a bit of a challenge that the coach seemed to be okay with it. We had to get through some kind of miss, I guess, myths that the athletes had in their head of, Oh, you're taking my blood. It's going to make me worse as an athlete. Yeah. You know, they, they thought we were taking like, you know, tub fulls of blood from them. So they were going to be weaker yeah. and, you know, poor endurance, but in reality, you know, it's you know, miles. not even seven mils hardly yet that we were taking. So once we kind of reassured them that, no, this, this really shouldn't have any impact on your performance, you're going to be fine. You know, then everyone kind of seemed to be okay with it. And then we had, you know, kind of a well oiled machine set up in terms of how many phlebotomy staff we had, yeah. you know, drawn samples. So we tried to be as efficient as we could getting the samples, you know, regularly throughout the season. But even then that's a far ways removed from taking a blood draw on a sideline, like during a football game, you know, we were doing it in the athletic training room, 
you know, you've not even on, on a game day type of situation. So again, still ways away from having that point of care tool mm-hmm. literally on the sideline during a game, but hopefully we can get there someday because again, it would take a lot of that subjectivity out of that diagnostic diagnostic process and kind of give more black and white answers on that. Just this season alone in professional football, there was a lot of controversy on, you know, athletes getting concussed or not, should they have been allowed to return back to the game, mm-hmm. you know, second concussion impact and, and those types of concerns. So we'll, we'll see where that area of research goes. I know a lot of people are trying to figure out that problem uh, right now. And so kind of secondarily that we were looking at, well, are there any kind of interventions then that can hopefully mitigate some of this brain damage or, yeah. you know, maybe yeah. provide like a protective effect kind of within the brain and, omega-3s has kind of been proposed as one of those, you know, potential nutritional interventions. And so we set up kind of a quasi-experimental, it wasn't necessarily truly randomized. We just had one team as a control group and the other team, you know, received this fish oil supplementation regimen throughout the season. And we saw a pretty clear difference in terms of that NFL, you know, that biomarker of, of brain trauma throughout the season in terms of the supplement group versus the control group. So there was a bit of a protective effect, protective effect in that fish oil supplementation group where they didn't experience the same increase in that biomarker of brain trauma throughout the season that we saw in the other group. So interesting. It uh, kind of certainly points towards a bit of this protective effect, um, you know, from fish oil supplementation and improving, you know, mega three index and those types of kind of health parameters to hopefully protect the brain or, speed up the recovery it's kind of hard to know which one's occurring there i was going to ask real quick um just before you before you push on there andrew just circling back quick for folks who aren't as familiar omega-3 index biomarker test can you just kind of walk through what what they're testing there and then maybe the dose that you guys use of the omega-3s in the study yep so the omega-3 index is is a kind of a blood test that you can do to evaluate really the concentration of omega-3 fatty acids within the blood. So it's, it's kind of a way to look at, are you getting enough, you know, omega-3s within the diet? Uh, you can also look at, you know, ratios of omega-6 to omega-3 fatty acids. That's kind of another uh, ratio or marker that's sometimes used through, through lab diagnostics. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of the amounts of fish oil that they were getting, it was about two grams uh, a day. So typically a bit higher than what you see with, you know, uh, if you just go to a supplement store and buy fish oil or something, sometimes those tend to be 800 milligrams, 600 milligrams. uh, Whereas we were going quite a bit above that uh, for the dosing regimen, which uh, again, maybe they need that higher of a dose. They're not only engaged in a contact sport, but they're larger athletes than, you know, typical general population walking around. So I think still work, more work needs to be done there to dial in what are maybe body size dependent, you know, dosing recommendations mm-hmm. or, or strategies out there that can kind of fine tune how to get into that sweet spot for omega-3 index. And with that group that you, you saw that increase in omega-3 index, as well as the, the decrease in the neurofilament light uh, markers compared to that control group that wasn't receiving anything. Is that right? Correct. Yep. So that was kind of confirming that the the dosing strategy that we implemented was successful in terms of increasing, you know, that omega-3 index. So that was what we were looking for to kind of confirm that they were actually taking the supplements and, and kind of following Lions. through with it in increasing, yep, omega-3s within the blood. It's important too, is in a real world practice, because again, young athletes, I mean, hey, 
mussels, oysters, fatty fish, all great sources of omega-3s, but in the real world, not always easy to get an individual or an athlete to decide to start eating those two, three, four times a week. And so having the ability and the convenience of a portable nutrition strategy like an omega-3 supplement, now all of a sudden, you know, to the to what you guys measure, you can actually see compliance is there, markers are being improved, and then you're getting that direct impact. So that's a you know, really fascinating, you know, area. Absolutely. Yep. And, and then another uh, dietary ingredient that we're looking at currently is creatine, which has also kind of been proposed mm. to have some, you know, cognitive benefits or potential kind of brain protective benefits. And so that study is a little bit different. We're looking at, can it enhance recovery after a concussion? Yeah. And so it's, it's unfortunately taking, well, it's a good problem to have because that means not a lot of athletes are getting concussed, but it takes longer because we have to wait for enough athletes to get a concussion and then enroll in the study. But then we're implementing kind of like a creatine loading yeah. dosing regimen with them and tracking, you know, recovery and, and how their self-reported symptoms kind of subside following that concussion diagnosis. So that's, that's another ingredient that we're really interested in. And then I think the follow-up then will be combining both creatine and fish oil to see if they're both, you know, beneficial in that regard. Is there some kind of synergistic benefit even uh, between the two? So those are, and, you know, not to jump ahead of the, the findings or data, but with football players or concussion or not concussion, um, compact or collision sport athletes, those are two ingredients I often always recommend is a good thing to add in um, to their normal kind of supplementation regimen is, is fish oil and creatine, not only for the, the brain health, there's obviously, you know, a lot of other, you know, health and performance benefits from those two ingredients, but it's almost like you may as well, the risk profile in both of those is very, very low, mm -hmm. uh, for side effects and the upside could be, you know, really impactful from, from a health standpoint. 100%. And obviously with the creatine sort of coming at the brain story from a different direction in terms of its ability to provide that energy source compared to something like a omega-3. So all of a sudden we're potentially supporting the brain via, via different pathways, right? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's again, it's a fascinating area. I had uh, Patrick O'Halloran, who's a doc, MD, PhD in the UK on, and they're doing a lot of research in rugby with a salivary marker uh, mRNA marker for uh, for concussion, and of course, when COVID came around, it was also an mRNA. <laughs> they had to they had to stop everything and put everything in the freezer and and wait a couple of years. So I think they're delayed with uh, some of their findings. But you're right in the sense of a, a point of care test that could be administered, you know, on the field, um, on the ice, that could give the, the medical team and the staff a clearer picture of what's going on. Is definitely would be a game changer. If we continue down the story here on creatine, obviously it does have a lot of tremendous benefits, uh, obviously performance, recovery. We talk about adolescents and kids. This is often a very controversial topic, even though, again, the safety profile um, on creatine is going to be one of the most studied supplements we have out there. Obviously, with kids and adolescents, more research coming out and required, and, and you've done some research in this area. Can you, you know, walk us through, maybe starting with just the potential benefits for kids and adolescents when it comes to creatine and then you know what we do know in regards to the safety profile yeah so in terms of the performance benefits they're really going to be the same for for any individual whether it is a, a 15 year old athlete or a 75 year old retiree playing pickleball you know the the perfect or you know potential performance impact is you you're increasing a short-term energy supply with within the muscle you know to 
to utilize during any kind of high intensity activity. So anytime you're increasing energy availability from kind of a cellular standpoint, it's, it's going to aid in really whatever task you're doing, especially again, it, it kind of those high intensity ranges there. Mm-hmm. So if it could benefit, uh, again, a 35 year old athlete, 25 year old athlete, it, it could really do the same thing for that younger athlete. And this is a question that I get all the time when I talk to teams, coaches, uh, parents, athletes, it's well, how young is, is too young for them to start taking creatine? You know, oftentimes it's a parent out there in the audience. I have a 12 year old who really wants to start taking it. Mm. You know, do you think it's safe for them to take? And as you kind of alluded to, it's hard because there's not a lot of data out there uh, within that specific population. We can somewhat extrapolate what we know from, you know, collegiate athletes or even kind of young adults and, and kind of go off of that. There are some, there's been about eight to 10 studies uh, with international adolescent athletes. Most of them are in soccer and swimming uh, as young as like 14 years of age, where they've supplemented with creatine for four, even all the way up to about 12 weeks. Most of those were performance oriented studies. So they were looking at how it impacted soccer specific performance or, you know, swim and again, quite consistently, they saw some aspect of those different, you know, kind of sports specific elements improve. None of them really reported any severe adverse effects. However, they also didn't, you know, closely monitor any lab markers or anything like that. So we don't really have some of that, you know, clinical data to support Mm. the safety element of it. However, there are a fair amount of studies that have been done in pediatric populations, um, you know, muscular dystrophy type patients, there's even, uh, you know, a class of individuals who suffer from these innate errors of metabolism is kind of the technical term for it, but that they, they either lack creatine transporters or the ability to synthesize creatine kind of within the muscle. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, there's a, a lot of different growth and developmental delays that can occur from that. And so obviously the, the first step there is, well, can we increase this, mm-hmm. you know, exogenously from supplementation strategies? And so there's several papers that have supplemented kids, even as young as, you know, three months, six months old, you know, with creatine to try to reverse some of these kind of metabolic deficiencies that are occurring. And there they very closely monitor some of these lab markers, you know, kidney function, liver enzymes and things like that. And even within that uh, pediatric population who, you know, have a lot of other comorbidities at play, it's still been shown to be safe without any adverse effects within those populations. And so I tend to try to combine all of that together when I, when I answer some of those questions, when I'm put on the spot and saying, well, you know, we think it's probably safe. Certainly more work is, is needed to really confirm that. Mm-hmm. However, there's a lot more evidence to support its safety uh, really for any population that it is, you know, some of the risks. And then within the United States, it's actually classified by our Food and Drug Administration is, it's called GROSS, generally recognized as safe, um, meaning it can be consumed, you know, and without any concerns for adverse effects. And that applies to children and adolescents. And so that, that's usually, again, kind of how I, re- I respond to those types of questions. And then um, my friend and colleague at Lindenwood, Chad Kirksick, he's about to start uh, high school supplementation study with with football players down in the St. Louis area, again, with creatine. And they're, again, closely looking at uh, lab markers. They're doing routine urine analysis. 
And so that'll be really the first study of its kind within adolescent athletes where we're closely monitoring some of those lab markers for health and safety. So again, we're, we're trying to add to the literature to, to really just support the, the safety and benefits of that supplement. That's tremendous. I had a chat on last year. I'll have to get both of you on when that uh, study gets completed and you can fill us in. But, yeah, uh, absolutely. When it comes to safety in kids, I mean, I find, you know, in Canada, ice hockey is the, by far the most popular sport. You're allowed to start body checking at 13, which you've got some 13-year-olds that are 185 pounds and some that are 140. So it gets to be a little dangerous. Right. And and so this question around, should the should ice hockey push body checking until you're 16? But in the meantime, when it comes to something like a creatine, you know, obviously the from the performance side, but even just from the potential prophylactic benefits from to the brain, I mean, 13, 14, 15-year-olds in contact sports, this seems like a good protocol to be able to say, hey, you know, the, the potential benefits even from a preventative side could be pretty impactful because, you know, as you know, we see now once you start getting concussions more frequently or at a younger age, there is a, a general association to, to, to struggling with them further down the line. And so um, it's an interesting area I find because with early specialization and more kids getting bigger, stronger, faster at younger ages, you know, we, we sort of need to keep up with the strategies we've got to be able to, to support. I'm curious your thoughts on that side of things. Yeah, I would completely agree. And again, there's the physiology is, is going to be somewhat similar in terms of, again, how it could improve performance. But then certainly I would think that the health uh, element and the potential, you know, benefits to brain health and and probably supporting that recovery as well. So hopefully that's an avenue of research that we can kind of continue to explore. It's, it's always a little bit trickier in, yeah. in kids to do that type of work, but uh, I, I think, you know, certainly needs to be done. And, and the other thing too, that I always address when I'm, you know, discussing these things with, with youth athletes and their parents is there's so many other things that kids fall short on in terms of, just overall performance and health strategies, right? They don't sleep enough. Yeah. They generally don't eat the right things. And so, you know, in terms of my list of priorities, you know, supplements and creatine is usually pretty far down the list yeah. because there's some low hanging fruit out there of things that they could absolutely implement right out of the gate and get a lot more bang for their buck on uh, when it comes to any kind of general performance and health strategy. Yeah, it's definitely uh, yeah, the meal frequency, the energy intake, all these habits that you want to build. And sometimes when you do present them with a tub of something and before establishing some of those, you're kind of consciously or subconsciously setting this tone of like the answers in the, in the, in the bottle here, rather than uh, you got to get your hands dirty and, and, and build some of these habits and get in the gym and all that good yeah. stuff. Cause it is as beneficial as creatine is again, the, the magnitude of benefit that we see is still only about five to 15%. Whereas Again, if you're getting eight hours of sleep, you're eating a you know, well-balanced diet, hitting your meal frequency yeah. and, and macronutrient targets, you're following a, a good training program, you're, you're actually you know, giving full effort within your training program. Like if you do all those things, you're going to get a lot more you know, return on your investment yeah. than what any yeah. dietary ingredient or, or supplement is going to be able to offer for you. 100%. Very well said. You know, if we kind of zoom out to 30,000 feet here as we, as we wind things down, I'm curious over your career working with athletes in, in various uh, disciplines, you know, what are some of the challenges you had over the years or some of the, the roadblocks, some of the athletes that stick out that, you know, either kind of made you think a different way you had to sort of maybe develop certain skill set or different areas to be able to kind of overcome, you know, the, the challenge or the, you know, what was in front of you with that athlete. 
I'll kind of answer that that two ways. The first one I would say is if I put my you know sports scientist kind of researcher hat on, one of the biggest challenges is when coaches and athletes kind of fail to realize or appreciate the importance of you know, full compliance or kind of pre-testing instructions of, no, we need you in here fasting to really get yeah. the most accurate value. Oh, I forgot I had breakfast yeah, or and a coffee. Uh, went out drinking last night. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, ah, uh, we, we can't do these things and get accurate data, you know, with all of our testing. And so that's always a challenge when you're kind of doing more applied sports science type work is mm. is just trying to get them to comply with your instructions and kind of follow through with things that you're asking of mm. them uh, so that's there's no easy way around that either it's in my experience it just comes down to developing that relationship with coaching athletic trainers this you know the athletes themselves and all the support staff of just getting everyone to buy in because if everyone's kind of on the same page, they understand the value that they can get back from doing some of that work. You know, they tend to just be more compliant and then more supportive of the things that you're asking of them. And then I would say from more of a practitioner standpoint, you know, one challenge or kind of way that I think differently now is not everyone has that background in exercise science and sport nutrition. And so you, you can't use that jargon with them. Yeah, like yeah. we kind of alluded to earlier, you can't just give them calories and macros and, and send them out the door and think that that's going to, you know, be all that they need to follow a perfect Job done. You gave them the perfect plan on paper should be no problems, right? Yeah, exactly. And so that's, you know, things that I've changed tremendously kind of throughout my more practitioner side of, of my job is, really trying to apply that knowledge with them, provide them with tools and strategies to adhere to some of those recommendations rather than just, again, sending them off with a sheet of paper. Here's your program. Here's your macros. You know, we'll see you in six months. Good luck kind of thing. So mm -hmm. I think that's always important to realize that a lot of times the people we're working with just don't have that background of knowledge that a lot of us, you know, just live in. So we're kind of used to all that terminology and, and what it means and how to interpret some of that. Yeah, great advice is, you know, when that barrier of entry is already seemingly high with that complicated sheet of paper, they don't even take the first step to sort of engage in the process and we, we lose them before we even get rolling. So that's a, that's a great point. And uh, curious your thoughts on the, you know, your line of research, things that have you excited in terms of coming down the, the pipeline, whether performance nutrition or, or performance, athlete performance in general, you know, when you look few years down the road, five years down the road, what are some of the things that have you excited? I think kind of continuing to explore more of this personalized nutrition or kind of individualized nutrition. I think that can, you know, certainly extend to the training part as well of, you know, I think this is going to encompass nutrition domains, some of the, the wearable technology that's out there and kind of this 24 seven surveillance type of model that we almost have at our fingertips now is how can we efficiently consolidate all of this incoming information and apply it and create kind of that personalized plan or program for someone that meets everything, meets their training needs, their, their goals that they have, their own kind of internal physiology, what their body actually needs and how it responds to training. So it's hopefully the, that sports science field can get there where we can efficiently use this unlimited information that's available at our fingertips. And then I would say the other thing too, with my position now uh, at Mayo Clinic, I still kind of consider myself a newbie here. I've been here about five years, but 
what I'm finding too is, is actually taking a lot of what we know in the sports science world and applying it to more of a clinical population. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of upside there on some of the tools that we use every day to increase, you know, performance, uh, you know, strength, lean body mass. There's a lot of patient populations out there that I think could really benefit from a lot of those strategies. General population needs it too, right? Yeah. And you, you, so you look at people, people undergoing invasive surgeries or who are really sick or frail, it's how could we take some of these athlete strategies and say, Hey, you need to up your protein intake or, Hey, a little bit of resistance training is going to make you more resilient, you know, through your surgery and recovery process. So it's kind of fun bringing that, you know, area of expertise into this hundred percent clinical world, um, that I kind of have right next door to me and, and kind of trying to get those two worlds to meet. Cause I think, you know, one has a lot to learn from the other. Yeah, patients and doctors alike, I imagine as well, right? I mean, for a lot of doctors are so deeply entrenched in their specialties that having a little extra knowledge of what some of these things can do. I mean, like you said, it can, it can be a game changer for, you know, more than a few patients. So yeah, hundred percent. Listen, Andrew, appreciate the time. I know you're, I know you're busy. Appreciate you carving out some time for us. You know, where can people stay connected with you? You know, we'll obviously post links to the, the some of the papers that we discussed, but uh, where's the best place to, to keep up with your work? I try to post a lot of the stuff that we're doing on Twitter. That's probably the best place to kind of follow along. And that's just at a Jagum is my Twitter handle. Um, and I try to, again, post not only work that we do, but, you know, kind of other work that others, you know, friends and colleagues out there are doing related to sports science and sport nutrition. So that's where I try to share a lot of that dialogue online. Amazing. Well, listen, we'll include all those links in the show notes and uh, again, appreciate the time and looking forward to keeping tabs on, on all the work you guys are doing. Sounds great. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. You can find the full video interviews on YouTube at the Performance Nutrition Podcast channel. Finally, if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe, all that good stuff. Thank you and see you next time. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.